When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Seth Abramovich here, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Welcome back to another episode of It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we have one of the most influential indie filmmakers from the 1990s, who now probably directs episodes of TV shows that you love. All that and more on this week's episode of It Happened in Hollywood. Hey there, and welcome back, listeners. I am really excited this week because we have one of my filmmaking heroes, Greg Araki. I've been seeing his name bubble up uh, recently on social media. Uh, His movie, Mysterious Skin, was in the top 100 on Letterboxd, and uh, just generally people appreciating him or feeling maybe he's a little underappreciated. So I'm excited to spend an hour with him and uh, celebrate his vision. Greg, you know, grew up in Santa Barbara. He's a Southern California boy. Uh, He went to UCLA to study film, and he started making the kinds of films he wanted to make. And part of what made them so breakthrough was that he was gay and the films were dealing with gay themes uh, and gay sex in very frank ways. And this was way back before that was uh, something you saw a lot of. And his first few movies, The Living End was the one that really made an impression on me. 1992, it was sort of two guys, a gay hustler and sort of a video store nerd, but uh, also a good-looking gay guy, uh, kind of hooked up and go on this crime spree and uh, they both are HIV positive uh, which was something you just did not see in cool indie movies at the time. Very bold filmmaking and then he kind of stepped it up with something known as the Teenage Apocalypse Trilogy the second of which we're going to be dealing with today, The Doom Generation from 1995. That one has an amazing cast. It has Rose McGowan in her first major role it has uh, Jonathan Sheck playing this sort of sexy drifter character and James Duval, who was uh, sort of a muse uh, to Greg and was in a lot of his films. And um, it's crazy and uh, surreal and sexy and very in your face. And it has just been remastered and re-released and it looks amazing. So definitely, if you've never seen Doom Generation, you know, give it a look and um, join me now as me and Greg Araki talk about his singular career. Gregoraki, thank you so much for being part of It Happened in Hollywood. Uh, this is something I've wanted for a long time, and I think uh, our timing didn't work. You were remastering Doom Generation last season, but now it's out. It's playing in different theaters around the country, and um, I'm just so excited. Thank you. Oh, well, th- well thanks for having me. <laughs> 
you don't know me, but I definitely know you, and uh, you have a huge influence on me uh, uh, in terms of your filmmaking. I mean, you were my Godard. Like uh, the things you were throwing up on the screen were exactly what I wow. needed to see at exactly <laughs> the right time. Uh, I uh, I'm 50, so I I moved to New York in '95. That's the year Doom Generation came out. Uh, but I grew up in in Montreal, and um, I went to McGill, and uh, I will. I'll never forget the first time I saw The Living End and uh, the effect it had on me. I, I didn't know those those kinds of uh, queer movies could be made and those things could be said. You had this punk aesthetic that uh, really spoke to me. So so thank you for bringing that language to, to my uh, movie encyclopedia. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much. That's, that's very flattering and humbling to hear. So <laughs> to be mentioned in the same breath as Godard is, is pretty, uh, pretty special. So as we usually do, I, I like to, to delve a little bit into your background before we jump into uh, one movie, which will be Doom Generation. So you're the ultimate uh, SoCal kid, right? Uh, could you tell us a bit about growing up down here? Yeah, I uh, was born in Los Angeles, but I spent most of my childhood in Santa Barbara. My parents moved there when I think I was about five, and I was there through, I guess, my early 20s. I did my undergraduate studies um, in film studies at UC Santa Barbara and then came here in the early 80s, I guess. 82 is when I graduated my um, my undergraduate studies. And so in 82, I came to go to USC Film School and kind of have been in LA ever since. I mean, I've, I used to come to LA a lot when I was when I was living in Santa Barbara. I would come, my relatives, I have aunts and uncles that lived here, and then I would come to shows all the time. And I was, I just was very LA centric all my life. And then, you know, moved here in sort of the early 80s and never looked back. So. <laughs> And your your scene, were you like with the skaters? Were you with the surfer? Like who who was your your crowd in high school and and then first year of college? My crowd in high school was very um, eclectic, but particularly in college, I was very super heavily influenced by punk rock music and new wave music and alternative culture. And me and my friends in college, you know, we used to go to shows all the time. And, you know, I've, it's really funny that at the Sundance um, premiere of the Doom Generation restoration, um, Keith Morris from Black Flag and Circle Jerks came to our screening. He is um, friends with Jimmy. He had done a movie with Jimmy, I think. And I was just, oh my God, like I used to, me and my friends used to watch um, The Decline of Western Civilization by Penelope Spheres. Uh, all the time. And we used to listen to the soundtrack all the time when we were undergraduates. And so it was so crazy to see him in the flesh at uh, at our screening. So, yeah, it was, just, you know, it, I was just at that very formative age, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, when that music was happening. And it was such a profound influence on my worldview and my sensibility and just the whole DIY aesthetic and the idea that it's not about, you know, being top 40 or being mainstream or being popular. It's about just, you know, doing your own kind of artistic thing and, and sort of, you know, just marching to your own drummer and just, you know, putting your stuff out there and, you know, and, and in the hopes that like-minded people will find it. So it was, you know, it would just hit me at, 
it's the exact right moment. I mean, I sort of grew up at the exact right time. So um, that was a just profound, profound influence on me. And I remember my last semester as an undergraduate in at UC Santa Barbara, uh, Michael Renoff, who actually ended up teaching at USC after that, um, he had this Godard class. And so I had a whole quarter where we did nothing but study Godard movies. Well, there you which go. Was, which was likewise a huge, I mean, I was right at that moment when I was at my most sort of formal. And, you know, what Godard was doing is very sort of just punk rock <laughs> mm-hmm. in cinema. And so, you know, that really resonated with me. And so, you know, I just... I was very, very lucky and very, very fortunate in terms of being in the right place at the right time. You know, I, this season is turning into a bit of a punk rock season. We have Alex Cox. Uh, we did a, a oh one wow, on the Repo, I, Man. Uh, Re- Repo Man is a Repo Man is another touchstone for me. I remember seeing that. What was that? Eighty two or something like that. Early eighties, right? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere around there. Yeah, I forget the exact yeah, year and right I, now. And again, same thing. I was, you know, whatever, twenty one, twenty two years old, and I remember that that movie just having a profound influence and just being like, oh, that I, I want to do, I want to do these kind of punk rock kind of movies, and you know, that, that's what fa- that fascinated me, and the and also Strange Than Paradise was. Um, a bit later, I think like 85 or something. And I remember sure, that Jim, was Jim Jarmusch's masterpiece. Yeah, that was a big, big influence on just not only me, but my whole general, like Rick Linkletter, Allison Anders, like all my, we all talked about that movie because it came out just at that time, you know, before Sundance sort of became Sundance. And, you know, when we were all just sort of working on our first features and it was just like, you could do this you could just make this weird black and white super artsy movie and you know it'll show in the theater and people will see it and you know and so all that stuff is you know again i was just right place right time it's interesting that you said you went to usc because over the years i found usc was definitely the mainstream stream and ucla was like alex cox went to the uh, ucla yeah, and he, so, so what brought you to USC, and did you find that your aesthetic was was hitting up against what they expected? Yeah, very much so. Like, I actually applied to um, UCLA and did not get in. Like, I got in. I applied to three schools uh, for my master's, and it was uh, USC, UCLA, and San Francisco State. And so, I got into San Francisco State and USC, but I did not get into UCLA, which was kind of my first choice. And um, and so, it actually worked out you know, perfectly for me. I mean, USC was definitely the Steven Spielberg school. It was the one where this sort of more um, mainstreamy kind of um, filmmakers that, you know, went on to have careers in Hollywood. Um, they all went to USC. And so it was, and it was funny. I remember my first year um, at USC, I had a teacher that just thought I was, you know, because I was just the arty punk kid. You know what I mean? I had like this funny haircut and I, you know, we listened to like new wave punk music all the time. And so, yeah, so I was just the arty punk kid. And um, I remember my teacher going, because my short films, my student films were always kind of Godardy and he's all, Godard, schmuddard. You know, <laughs> it was just like, they, it was just so like antagonistic to anything that had to do with sort of art cinema or, you know, European cinema, or there was just this, they were, it was a very much kind of 
in the mainstream tradition. But it, it was great because it, it made me very much a survivor and very kind of independent and very, really strong and really sh- kind of confident in what I was doing. You know, it's it was one of the, I remember film school was very much preparing me for the world. And since I remember just really feeling that sense that cinema is so subjective. You know, I mean, it's something that you learned in film school and it's just like, it's really the spectator and the movie and the sort of dialectic between the, you know, that, that, um, that synthesis and that conflict that creates movies and that every movie is different and every, you know, every audience member is different. And so, you know, it, it really served me in my, early years because, you know, my movies tend to be quite polarizing. And if I was like a super sensitive, just sort of (laughs) trying to please everybody type of person with that sensibility, I don't think I would have made it because it's like, you know, it's like some of my early movies living in particular, um, very polarizing. I mean, like ardent, ardent supporters, but equally passionate you know detractors just wanting me to you know wanting to uh you know crucify me and so um you know it was it was you know i i think my my sort of cinematic upbringing was pretty much exactly what i I needed to do i i feel like i've just through my life just been a very you know lucky person in terms of being in the right place at the right time and you know what's what's sort of you know, happened was always kind of meant to happen, I think. I feel like you are a true artist and that uh, that's what sort of sets you apart from other filmmakers, that there there is something you're trying to say. And um, I wonder, was it formulated in your mind or were you just like, how did you come up with these scripts and these stories? I feel like it was very, you know, much um, in my sort of generation. You know, it's like I kind of came, came of age during that film school generation, you know, which is sort of the beginning, you know, when film studies was just being started taken seriously and there was this whole sort of film school um, sensibility and, you know, the auteur theory was so, you know, the idea of the director as the sort of author of the piece and, you know, it just all, all of that stuff, the French New Wave, and and it was a very specific time in, I think, film culture in the sense that I sort of got the sense that that would always be that way. And it wasn't because like shortly after that, you know, um, I know friends who've like taught film school and film students, their, their focus shifted a bit, you know what I mean? In terms of um, wanting to be more, you know, in this sort of post Sundance age, be, you know, be Quentin Tarantino, be, you know, direct a Marvel movie, you know, it's just sort of like follow those paths that that's not what it was about when I went to film school. When I went to film school, it was just, um, you know, film history and film studies and film criticism and like, you know, Goddard and Kurosawa as well, you know, and Hawks and Hitchcock and everybody. You know, I mean, the idea of, of you know, I think super heavily influenced by that whole Coyote cinema sort of school mm-hmm. of those French New Wave filmmakers where, you know, film is this, you know, amazing art form and it's sort of like the most expressive of all the art forms and that, you know, directors have a worldview and, and you know, they have their, their, you know, you're sort of approaching cinema as 
a painter would approach a canvas or as a poet would, you know, write poetry. And, and so, you know, that's kind of the way that was sort of my education. So, and again, because of the sort of alternative culture and new wave music and, you know, that whole scene was so much a part of where my head was at. And then also being a person of color and, and, you know, queer and everything else. It, it, you know, I, it really, I had a voice and I really felt that I, there was never any question of like, Oh, should I write something that's more like you know, mainstream or commercial or within, you know, the sort of just circumscribed um, uh, ideas of what, you know, kind of Hollywood movie making should be. It was more just like, this is, you know, I have this, I'm steeped in cinema history and like all the different genres and all the different auteurs. And from there, like what, you know, what do I want to say and how do I want to say it? Kind of. Let's talk about the queer piece of it. Um, first of all, you know, what was coming out uh, like for you or, or discovering that, that you're not heterosexual? It was, you know, I mean, again... <laughs> I don't want to keep harping on this, but I feel like I was such a, um, you know, the time I was born, it's like I sort of was the you know, best of all worlds in the sense that when I first when I first was sort of exploring my sexuality and sort of feeling like, oh, like I'm different or, you know, am I attracted to other men or, you know, what's going on? It was, you know, before it was so widely accepted. You know, what I always say that's so interesting because it's, like, changed so much in my lifetime. It's in a kind of unbelievable way. But I was able to sort of, you know, I was there for the whole thing. You know, it's just like when I first, you know, went to my first gay bar, you know, when I was, whatever, 18, 19, um, you know, it was still very much a secret thing, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. And what I always say that's so sort of telling is when I was at, at USC Film School, um, you know, with my arty haircut and, you know, be, me being the artsy Goddard kid, I was not out. Like I was, it was like I was, um, and it was, you know, 10 years later, I definitely would have been out, you know, <laughs> but so I, you know, I experienced everything, you know, the closet and, you know, and it's like being, having experienced it, I can feel, um, to me, I'm just grateful that, you know, it's a, it's a completely different experience. You know, I sort of experienced what it's like to be in the closet. I experienced what it's like to be, you know, out and not in the closet. Yeah, it's like I've experienced, and, and now, you know, with gay marriage and, you know, whatever, some crazy, like, 25% of Gen Z identifying as LGBT, you know what I mean? It's like, um, you know, it's, it's just, I, I witnessed the whole thing, and it's just, you know, experienced the whole thing, which I think is, you know, such a sort of privileged place to be. I mean, if I had been born earlier or later, I would really not have you know, seeing this amazing, incredible, like, evolution and progress that we've had. And that friction, though, because I remember it as well, um, it helps create art. 
right? When you feel that you're being, you know, sublimated or, you know, pushed to the edges or whatever, or just not wanted, that that is a creative stimulus. And then the other thing that in rewatching uh, The Living End and also Doom Generation is that um, AIDS is hanging over it. And sex uh, then was, uh, there was like the specter of death was always associated with every time you had sex. And uh, that just became normal. And uh, I don't think kids today really understand <laughs> what that was like, but I, I, it, it infuses everything you make. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was, you know, being young during this sort of Holocaust of AIDS was a profound, profound, um, had a profound impact on me. And, you know, that's sort of where the whole queer new wave came from. It was really not like the French new wave where, you know, Todd Haynes and Tom Kalin and, you know, Rose Trochet and the, all of those people. We didn't just sit in the room and go, oh, yeah, we want to change, like, representation. It was literally just all of us working on our own little projects independently, totally unaware of each other. And but influenced by that same thing. And, you know, it's the same thing that it's the reason why Queer Nation and ACT UP were born. You know, it was, it was out of the frustration, out of the despair and out of that the sense of doom that everybody felt that, you know, as an, as a young artist, you had to express it. Like you, there was so much feeling around it and so much angst and anxiety and dread and anger and just so many emotions. And, um, you know, and that's kind of, um, living in and, um, totally fucked up and doom generation are all very much me just kind of processing it. Um, you know, on the ground processing it. And so, um, you know, that was a lot of my, um, a lot of my output of the, of the early 90s has that, it comes from being under that shroud of AIDS. You know, it's, it was definitely something that uh, was on everybody's mind. And it's hard to imagine, you know, thank God, um, but to be in your 20s and just, think about death all the time you're constantly thinking about death and people are just dropping dead in the streets and it's just very it's just a you know it's just a it's a fucked up mindset to to be in that you know young people today just can't have they have no idea which is you know a blessing that they don't have any idea yeah. well they they had covid but uh it's not the same <laughs> as AIDS. AIDS well, was, it was a whole other thing. AIDS was so specific because it was so related to sex. And it's, you know, I mean, it was very, you know, because it was so horrible in the sense that it was on the, you know, the, the it was right after the sort of free liberation, you know, gay liberation and the idea that, you know, gay people had been up oppressed and and outlawed and you know and and you know hidden away for so long and then finally you know there's some sort of liberation and you know with the sexual revolution and everything just feeling of um freedom at last and then you know for this to come along and you know it's just sort of try to drive everybody back back to the dark ages you know is very very specific you know and again you know it's a profound profound um impact on our generation i think 
and created, uh, you know, it killed a lot of artists, but it also created a lot of great art. Yeah, great art. But, you know, again, the whole generation of people lost. And who knows where we'd be today with those people were around. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Um, so let's go to Doom Generation. Uh, and it opens uh, with a title card that says, A Heterosexual Film by Greg Araki. So right away, you're laughing within the first uh, seconds of the film. Uh, but what's the, what's the backstory of that? What, what, you know? The backstory of that is actually um, uh, Doom Generation is my first movie that has a, like a real budget with, um, you know, I had a deep I'd, before Doom Generation for Totally Fucked Up and for Living In and for my first two black and white movies. I like was the cinematographer, editor, like I did everything with like production design. <laughs> like, I I had like nobody. I mean, Living In, it's like totally I had some producers helping me and a little bit of help, but um I did kind of everything and a producer after totally fucked up and um, living in came up to me and said, um, you know, you make these gay movies that are too punk rock for gay people, you know, because again, they were very polarizing in the gay community and, you know, they had, they definitely had there's a lot of passionate support, but a lot of, um, detractors as well in fact when Louis played the castro there was like a protest <laughs> what the what, what legend has it so um so you know he so he basically said you know you make these gay movies that are too punk rock for gay people so if you make a heterosexual movie i'll produce it and i'll get you a real budget for it and so in my sort of punk rock bratty way i said okay i'll make you a heterosexual movie but the idea being that it would be the most homoerotic queerest heterosexual movie ever oh what the fuck are you doing relax you like it i'm not gonna like your fingers shoved up my shit shoot that's grotified turn away stop being so uptight and live a little jesus and so I was actually very um, intrigued by the idea of this um, kind of wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, I it was interesting for me to make such a homoerotic, quote unquote, straight movie because my thought was like, there are people who would never go to see The Living End or a gay movie. You know what I mean? Because it's, a especially again, we're talking about the 90s. We're not talking about 2023. And so um, they would never see a gay movie because it's like, it's for a very specific audience. And um, but the idea being that they would go see a heterosexual movie that has a beautiful girl in it, you know? And so it was, you know, I've had many people tell me through the years that my movies made them gay <laughs> because it literally you know it's it's a whole new thing for for people to see and to just you know sort of question begin to question and, and begin to explore and i think that that's from me like you know it's in it terms of my own personal life that i mean it's like a big part of my story is this you know all about you know sort of exploring those sort of gray areas there was another film that was a mainstream film called threesome that i remember had a big effect on me i remember 
Yeah, I remember that movie. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, no, it was made by Andrew Fleming, the who went to UCLA. So, oh, no yeah. kidding. Yeah, yeah, that, and it was the same thing. I think a lot of people dipping a toe into queer waters. They said, "Oh, yeah. I can see this movie." Yeah, it's just sort of yeah. It's like the idea being that you're sort of you know, you go from yeah. It's sort it it's it's not like just walking into the living edge. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's sort and so I was very um, intrigued by that. Okay, so so you have a budget, a pretty big budget, right? It's like eight hundred thousand dollars. That's a big jump for you. Yeah, my, yeah, because. Totally fucked up and and living in, we're both in the sort of twenty thousand dollar range, I think, on so sixty millimeter. I mean, it's almost a million dollars, and and so, uh, did you? For how did you come up with this script? Because I I know it was it inspired by a, a, a comic strip or the two main characters. Uh, the the movie it not inspired by a comic strip, um, so much as the names Amy and Jordan came from this comic strip. That was popular in the in the uh, early '90s, or not not popular, but it was some. Um, it was in like the LA Weekly or LA Reader or something. It was just like this very bizarre sort of kind of a punk rock lynching sort of comics. I mean, remember David Lynch had a comic strip in those days called "The Angriest Dog in the World," that <laughs> um, was like the craziest lynching comic strip ever but um but yeah it was like that it was like a kind of a very odd macabre comic strip in the in the paper and and so i took the names from there um everything you know there's in those days i mean currently too the things i work on now uh, you know i approach my movies are almost like they're like journals or diaries for me they're very very personal and very much things out of my life, things I'm, you know, like I have a notebook of, you know, would just jot down things that come to me, ideas or, you know, or, or, you know, a lot of the things that Amy Blue talks about are just things that I would write down <laughs> and now they're coming out of her mouth, you know, and it's like, just, you know, and, and so I'd always, you know, I love, you know, a couple on the run movies, you know, living in a couple on the run movie and so is Doom Generation and, and um, the sort of violent climax of Doom Generation, a similar thing, an incident like that had happened in my hometown. So I had a note that I wanted to you know, put that in a movie one day. And so I always knew kind of where the ending was going to end up. And I um, have always sort of been interested in these sort of threesomes and, um, you know, or the sort of couple dynamic is sort of, is sort of um, thrown off off balance and you know it's sort of from there you know i knew i wanted to you know have this three this couple run into this third person and they sort of go on the road and sort of end up in this kind of very dark and super nightmarish place and kind of that's kind of what the framework of the of it was and then from there you know it's just like i really you know it's hard for me to Describe. I don't know where it all comes from. It's just the rest. Sit down, and write it, and this movie starts to play in my head, and then and the characters sort of start talking, and that's kind of you know they sort of take over a certain point. And then you're working with so the, the the main threesome of the of the of the film. It's it's James Duvall, who's become became your kind of muse, 
in a lot of your films. And then Rose McGowan, is this her first uh, big starring role? Yeah, she had been like an extra, I think, in Encino Man. (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes the city is sucking away at my soul. Like yesterday, I was stuck in this humongous traffic jam on the 405 freeway. I just couldn't wait to get to the dead bodies lying there on the bloody asphalt. All I cared about was getting out and moving again. I know. I feel like a gerbil smothering in Richard Gere's butthole. There just is no place for us in this world. And Jonathan had done a little, Jonathan Shack, he'd done a bit, like he did a Zeffirelli movie right before um, Doom Generation, but he hadn't really worked for it that much either. What do you mean, it's fine? Is it the size of a Vienna sausage? Or like a baby's arm? Is it cut? Is it uncut? Does it lean to the left? Does it lean to the right? Does it go in the southeasterly direction? Is it curved? Is it straight? Is it shaped like a fucking corkscrew or what? What difference does it make to you? Does he plunge it into you long? Slow and deep, like this. Was it quick, short, (laughs) and shallow, like a jackrabbit? Does he make noises like this? (laughs) (laughs) Or does he make them like... I know, he's probably a whimper, huh? You ready? They were all very new. I mean, the way it kind of came about was I had met Jimmy on Tully, when we did Tully Fucked Up. He was just this sort of, I met him actually at the coffee shop I used to ride at. And um, it was the experience of making Tully Fucked Up that inspired me to do what, you know, would what I would later call my teen apocalypse trilogy, which is totally fucked up doom generation and nowhere. And, um, and so I wrote doom generation and nowhere specifically for, for Jimmy after totally fucked up. And so it was after, uh, you know, and doom generation and nowhere. And once I had written those scripts, I always knew it was going to be this sort of trilogy with this kind of arc with uh, of him playing three different characters in three different movies, but sort of the center of each one. I don't know what it is, but I feel really weird tonight. Like something's gonna happen. Me too. Hey, Amy. Do you love me? Yeah, totally. Why? just I love you can mean a lot of things like you'll do till someone better comes along I can't describe how I really feel but I know I'm supposed to say this or shut up I'm watching TV are you stoned? All three of them are so beautiful. I mean, it's really you picked very attractive actors. <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't hurt. They don't hurt your eyes. That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's that was one of the first things I told Marcus uh, Marcus who that 
um, from Strand Releasing, who um, did the did the remaster. Um, I was so sort of stunned by when we were doing the remaster because I had forgotten how beautiful the movie is. I mean, the lighting by the DP Jim Feely and the production design by the great late great Teresa de Prez and the three of the three leads, like literally all at the very, very peak peak of their beauty. You know, it was just a little almost startling to me to see it on the big screen and to see, you know, it looked like that because that's one of the things about the 4K remaster that I'm so excited about is that, you know, for years, you know, the Doom Generation for you know the last 28 years has sort of had lived with this cult following, but it's on the basis of a really crappy like video copy. <laughs> like the original DVD of Doom Generation is not even letterboxed. It's really like not a great transfer, I guess. I supervised it, but I literally don't remember. Um, it's just not a great copy of the movie. So it's a little horrifying to me as a as a kind of perfectionist filmmaker that this is the version of the movie that people have been watching. That and there's also an, a totally unauthorized R-rated cut that's completely butchered. And so those are the two versions of the movie that that, you know, have been bootlegged and passed around and like, you know, and so, um, what's the rating of, of the, of the, of the official one? But the official one is unrated and it's supposed to be unrated. I mean, I remember when we, when I set out to make Doom Generation, I remember telling the producers, like, I want this to be like last Tang One Paris for teenagers. Like I want it to be <laughs> like this transgressive, subversive, just sort of, you know, like not for mainstream audiences, you know, or just like, you know, mainstream audiences with a, with a red flag and, you know, and so, you know, like a forbidden movie. And, and so that was always the intent that it would be unrated. And, um, the distributor, you know, because of those days, like blockbuster equaled money, they're like, Oh, we have to do a blockbuster version. And I said, no, you can't do <laughs> it's not, not allowed. And, and so anyway, they did one anyway. And, um, I demanded that they put on giant letters, like the director hates this version and does not <laughs> want this version to be seen. And, you know, they put it on little tiny letters in the back or whatever. And so that version has really come back to haunt me because it's literally so, it's missing like 20 minutes. It doesn't even make sense. Like it's literally just random images slapped together because they just had the, when they took it to the MPAA, the MPAA said, you know, because the thing about Doom Generation that's weird is that there's not really that much sex or like explicit graphic things to cut out of it. It's literally all, you know, it's 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 sort of a lot of times off screen or the way they're talking. And so the MPA literally told Trimark, the distributors, they said, we find the the whole tone of this movie like unacceptable so you <laughs> you just have to keep cutting and cutting and cut just cut it cut it cut it just keep cutting shit out and eventually we'll give you our rating so they took out like i think over 20 minutes so it barely it doesn't even make sense so 
it's really I've always said it's like I'd rather you don't watch anything than watch than watch that version because it's like and and even the unrated version as I said is not letterboxed and it's not a it's not a great transfer. So the remaster is you know I, I, it was like a brand new movie to me. I color time the whole thing. We remixed all the sound and like we even did ADR in a couple lines and like I like pumped up all the music because it has such a fantastic soundtrack that was kind of buried in the original mix for some ungodly reason. So it's really like a whole new movie. And to see it on the big screen is just like mind blowing. Like we just had a screen, had some screenings in San Francisco this weekend and it was incredible. Like, it's just like a totally, totally different experience. So. Yeah. So if you're listening, I would check to see if it's coming to your town. It just played at the Alamo draft. House if it's in LA. coming to your town, yeah, it's like uh, go see it on the big screen because it. The thing about Doom Generation and also the film after it, Nowhere, which is the film that we're remastering now, because they're gonna actually do the whole Teen Apocalypse trilogy at the Academy of all places in the fall. So, oh hell um, yes, yeah. So I'm <laughs> super there. super. No, I'm super excited about that. I mean, it's really like a dream come true for me. And um, Nowhere in particular has never been released on DVD in the United States. And every four decades, every time I appear for any of my movies, people are like, where's Nowhere? When are you going to release Nowhere? We want to, like, Nowhere's my favorite movie. And so um, we're remastering that movie next. And so that's kind of in, that's kind of in the works. And we'll hopefully um, the next few months have a new version of Nowhere as well. Well, that's really exciting because Nowhere has an amazing cast and is obviously another uh, classic. Yeah, it's it, it, well, Nowhere's just sort of the the grand finale of the trilogy. So, and and it's um, yeah, I can't wait to see it on the big screen. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> but this one is so gorgeous. Uh, it, it's such a beautiful film. And do you, do you want to talk at all about um, the cinematography and the production design and where you shot around LA and how you got the look? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Team Generation is it's just sort of, it was such a kind of crazy, happy accident. I mean, Jim Feely, the DP, was not really, I don't I don't think he did any features before Doom Generation. He, I hired him because he worked with Bruce Weber a lot on music videos and commercials and stuff. And so he was very, you know, obviously <laughs> from the way the movie looks, they, um, he knew how to light pretty people and make them look like gods and goddesses, you know, and, and um, that's why we hired him. I mean, that aesthetic was a very kind of influential visual influence on me. And so, you know, I wanted it to have, you know, to have that sort of very gorgeous kind of look to it. But when I was doing the remaster, I was noticing the way he lit the movie is so, again, considering he had no crew to work with. I'd done barely any equipment. But um, the light in the movie is so beautiful and frequently, like, um, undulating. You know I mean? Frequently kind of wavering, going in and out. And, like, it's very, very subtle and very, very beautiful, you know. And the production design by um, Therese DePress, who unfortunately died a few years ago, her like her vision and you know so much of it like the way the interior of that car looks was all her like she was literally like we're in this car so much it's like this 
car's got to be like a world, you know. What I mean? So mm-hmm. she just decorated the shit out of it, and it was, you know, everything in the the uh, red room and the black and white checked rooms. I mean, she did that all, you know, by hand, just like created it. Um, and so it was a bit, you know, and again, a, like super low budget production, like like very little money, very little time, and you know, they they. Um, they really came through and, you know, I had this thing in doom and there were both were, I'm just as a filmmaker, not that interested in reality, like documentary reality. It's not my th- like kind of handheld camera, ugly lighting, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, this looks just like the real world. Uh, like I want, like I want, I'm very interested in like, yeah, I'm super influenced by Dave Lynch and that, you know, the, his movies and the way that, you know, uh, they're so surreal and dreamlike. And I wanted everything to feel like a dream. And I didn't want anything to look ordinary. Like they go to a bar and I don't want it to feel like, oh, yeah, that's the bar down the street. I want it to feel like it, just this weird place that, that you're that is, you know, that's heightened and subjective and, and you know, accentuated. And so. Um, everything is, you know, with, you know, again, no money and no time. Everything has this incredible stylized, you know, kind of surreal look that is what we were going for. Yeah, let's talk about that bar scene. So they go into a bar. It's completely covered in silver. There's a giant sign that says Obey hanging above the, the pool table. We're accessories to two homicides. Doesn't that concern you in the fucking least? I'm kind of curious if there's any connection to uh, to uh, obey the, uh, the street artist with that. And, I think uh, the- I think so. I don't know. Therese came up with the obey. It's just like she also came up with the foil because you know we just had this die, shitty dive bar to work in, and you know she she had done um, she had done she did actually on Andy Warhol, I think, but I don't think it was. I guess it was before this movie. She had done a Warhol type foil thing before, and that's how she knew that she could do it. And so it was her idea to cover it for everything in foil, which looks amazing. And then, you know, Parker Posey. <laughs> yeah, and then Parker Posey's As there, well, like, oh, to, I'm in heaven. To lift, it to, to lift it to a whole other level. That's what I was so excited um, with the film screen that BAM. Um, few weeks ago i went to screen this weekend in san francisco like literally the audience cheered when parker appeared because <laughs> it's such an iconic moment and she is so iconic her performance is so iconic in the movie it was very very cool yeah i just uh saw Bo is afraid which i keep talking to all my guests about but uh, she appears you know in the third act and uh, it's just like it's just such a welcome sight, you know. Then you know when she's on screen, you're gonna be happy. I'm gonna lop his dick off. 
like a chicken head. I've known Parker for forever, and uh, yeah, I just think she's she's one she's one of a kind. There's no Parker. There is no other Parker Posey. You know what I mean? Like, there's a million actresses, but there's only one Parker Posey. And we were just talking this weekend about superhero movies because I hate superhero movies, and we were talking about I'm all, the only decent superhero movie is Superman with Parker Posey. <laughs> but only Parker Posey's <laughs> when she like slaps Kevin Spacey and like one out of whatever Superman that is like the rest of the movie is like garbage. But the 20 minutes that she's in it is like a whole other level of like insanity. Like it's hilarious. Same thing with, check that out. Oh, oh yeah. When I she's forgot she was in it. <laughs> It's fucking incredible. Like the it's Brian like a this giant, one, yeah. it's this giant bl- uh, studio blockbuster tentpole, <laughs> and all of a sudden Parker Posey shows up, and it's just like this whole. It's like a John Waters movie, and and the same thing happens with Josie and the, that movie Josie and the Pussycats, which is like <laughs> fucking terrible. Like literally, like it's this is the worst movie I've ever seen. And then her and Alan Cummings play the bad guys or something, and the the whole movie just turns into this surreal crazy thing it's like you know it's like her thing of like being able to sort of elevate whatever sort of you know tedious hollywood thing she's in to a whole other level of just brilliant genius she was that way in that that scream that she was in too it's just like i couldn't yeah like i don't i i hate those kind of movies and I remember it's like, and, but, you know, and then when she died, I'm all, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're done with that franchise. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, oh, we can, we can lead now. <laughs> she is definitely uh, a treasure. And I think, I think most uh, queer audiences know that, but maybe she needs to be better celebrated while she's here because she's so, uh, she's so brilliant. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think she's pretty celebrated. <laughs> she's she deserves, too, well, she doesn't have an Oscar. She deserves one. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I just feel like, <laughs> you know, she's definitely, you know, she's iconic. She's booking. There's no one like her. For sure. I wanted to ask about the the final scene, which you already brought up and said it actually happened, which is pretty scary. But it, it was probably the most controversial part of the film. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I, I remember when the movie premiered in, at Sundance in 1995, and just people were literally just blowing out of their seats. It was like so intense. Were there walkouts, or were they just like really upset? There were some, but not that many. I think. Um, yeah, it's. I, I. I mean, I'm. I'm sure there were walkouts, but you know, it's not. I don't know. It's. I think it's because it's so kind of shocking and startling and intense um yeah i it's like i think that um and also it's not that um i don't know it's not it's a pretty it it goes by quite i noticed it because i watched it this week this weekend in san francisco it's very intense but it's not long you know i mean it's like literally it kind of hits you and then it's over <laughs> you know what I mean? and then the movie's over it's very um so yeah it uh, it it you know again you know like it, it was doom generation i don't know if it's my most polarizing movie or living <laughs> the most polarized but it's it was polarizing at the time I and mean, very you know again people love that movie and you know have kept it alive for 28 years but they're 
lot of people who don't like a movie and um, don't get it. And here's what I said, I was talking about this weekend in San Francisco. It's like, you know, my movies aren't for everyone, but for the people that, you know, for the people that get them, for the people that are on their wavelength, it's like they really, really get them. Yeah, you know I mean, it's like, like when we were in San Francisco, it's like, you know, some of these people were so just that, you know, the movies had a profound, profound impact on them. You know what I mean? Like, it's like literally like this movie changed my life. And, um, you know, as a filmmaker, you kind of really can't hope for anything more than that. I mean, that's so humbling and sort of gratifying for me i mean it's not really i don't make movies because oh yeah i want to win an oscar one day it's just like <laughs> as an artist the idea that you could create something that has that is so meaningful to somebody and it matters so much to them i mean that's the highest compliment that anyone can ever give well i'm definitely in that group of people um for sure so thank you and i know that you've you know, in recent years, uh, you, you still make films, and but you've also been directing TV. And I, I noticed that you directed one of the Dahmer uh, uh, monster episodes, the one about his father. That was really interesting to see that you did that. Uh, one, because um, I started to realize that so much of what's on TV now or streaming now, that you had an influence on it. I don't think there is a Dahmer without a lot of the work that you did. And um, and I'm curious uh, about that. How how was that experience to shoot that episode? I mean, episodic is really. I remember the the first episodic I ever did was um, American Crime season two. I think it was the season where um, the teenage boy is sexually assaulted, and John Ridley specifically wanted like like Kimberly Pierce did once. He specifically wanted kind of Sundancey directors to direct that season. And he was a big fan of Mysterious Skin. So he, you know, kind of just called me up out of the blue and asked if I would do it. And I had never done an episodic before, but I've always, always, since my, since Nowhere, because Nowhere was actually written, it was right around the time of Twin Peaks. And it was written at, because Twin Peaks, the pilot of Twin Peaks was, Re released theatrically in Europe. You know what I mean? It was it was sort of that beginning of the crossover between film and TV and um, the idea that, and Twin Peaks as a show was so, you know, it just kind of blew me away, the idea that you can make this art cinema and put it on TV and people would watch it and talk about it like, like all over the world it was so mind-boggling to me and so exciting. And so, since Twin Peaks, I've always wanted to do my own TV show, which I finally did in, in 2019 when I got to do Now Apocalypse on Stars, which was, you know, sort of, um, I always sort of describe it as, um, it's like a queer sex in the city meets Twin Peaks, <laughs> which is everything, all of my TV ideas, all the TV pilots I've written over the years, I've always been like, it's this cross with Twin Peaks. Right. But, um, but so I had been wanting to work in TV. And so, the opportunity to do American crime kind of opened the door to me doing episodic. And I learned so much about show running and TV and the world of TV and how it's different than movies, but also similar to movies. And so I remember, um, because American crime shot in Austin, um, I was hanging out 
you know, having a beer with Rick, Rick Linkletter, which I always do when I'm in Austin, and uh, talking to him about doing episodic. And episodic is interesting because it's, it, I find it kind of fun in the sense that the, uh, having made indie movies for so long, um, you get to like make a little mini movie, you know, it's less, you ha- and you get to work with great cast. You have more money than you've ever had before. Um, equipment, you know, like everything about it, you get, to, you got, there's a lot of toys on a set, especially if it's a big set like Dahmer. I just did that show, um, American Gigolo too for Showtime. And they had like this thing called, it's called the Russian crane, although they changed it to, um, a Ukraine now because of the war, <laughs> but um, it's like a, they use it in like Fast and Furious. It's just like a, it's like a camera car that has a crane on it. And like you would do anything with it. And so I've never had things, anything like that in, in any of my indie movies. So you get to just work with new toys and you get to make kind of like a cool short, like student film almost, but you don't have any of the responsibility that you have on a movie, you know, because it's not yours. It's like the showrunners. It's like, you know, like I didn't write Dahmer. I didn't, you know, it's like, I have no control over why it just so happened to be that I got, you know, this great episode uh, with Richard Jenkins, who I fucking love. And, um, you know, it, and I was happy that I didn't have to kill anybody and no one got eaten in my episode. You know? so, <laughs> um, you just try to do the best work you can do with the script that you, that you're given, you know, and you learn so much and you learn so many tricks and you get to work with, with cool people. But I find it, um, it's such a, um, it's, you, you get to, you know, make the best episode you can, but you don't have any real control over it. You know, you kind of do your thing and walk away, which is kind of a, almost like a, a little bit of a blessing, you know, because a movie is something that, you know, it's, it takes forever. It's like you're doing it, working on it for fucking years, you know, and like I look at Duke Generation 28 years later, I'm still working on it. So it's like they're your children. My movies are my children. Like I don't have kids and my movies are my kids. So they're the way that people who have kids. It's just like they're a joy, but a burden at the same time. I mean, you love them, but they, you know, they're a lot of, they're a lot of work and they really, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility, uh, movies. So um, that's my that's my story with episodics. Do uh, you ever see Rose McGowan anymore? Because I know she's like kind of like turned on her career a lot, and this being her first big film, like I'm wondering how she how you how she feels about it. I haven't talked to Rose for for uh, years. We had a bit of a falling out. Oh, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so, anyway. <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, because you, you really did elicit um, an amazing performance uh, from her in the film, I thought, uh, I think. Yeah, I've, I, that's one of the other things that struck me about the remasters. They are all fucking fantastic. You know what I mean? Like, the cast are so incredible. And, you know, they're, they were all so young and so new, but... They're all like movie stars. I mean, that was one of the things that really struck me when I when I saw it again. I was just like, "Wow!" I was kind of yeah. Well, amazed. You, you, you did that. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to make another film? Yeah. No, I'm always working on the next thing. I have a movie I'm working on and TV thing I'm working on. So you know, with the, with the strike, hopefully it won't last too long. <laughs> 
I know this is the first uh, episode of the podcast since uh, they've uh, the WGA voted for a strike. So now um, everything is thrown into disarray and question marks. But uh, let's hope that it ends soon. And Greg Rocky, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, a, a hero of mine, and and this is such a special moment for me to to get this time with you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, we we're really we we're really trying to get the word out there about Doom Generation and the whole. Teen Apocalypse trilogy coming back, coming back to a theater near you. So yeah, get get out there and see it, listeners. And um, and when is the Academy screening? Because I definitely want to see in the, that. It's going to be in the fall. I've, it's rumored to be September, but that's kind of what we're the goal we're working at, on right now for 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 nowhere. So we're just about to start the remastering of it, and it's it's cool because because we've done it once already with Doom Generation. We. we you know, we know kind of what's how long it takes and what's involved and and all that. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really exciting. I'm just you know as a you know as somebody who you know has a background in film studies and film history, I'm just so happy that there is a version now of Doom Generation and soon of Nowhere that I'm happy with. That this can be like the version that after I'm gone, you know, when they go back and like, let's look at the 90s cinema or whatever. Like, this is the version that I want future generations to see because it's like representative of what it should look like and what it should sound like. So, I'm and just, that's through Strand releasing, right? Yeah, Strand is responsible for both the both of the remasters. So. All right. So keep your eyes open for screenings. And um, thank you, Greg. Very special day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Incredible conversation today with Greg Araki and how exciting that Nowhere from 1997 is getting the same uh, treatment as Doom Generation. Uh, that will be an absolutely beautiful thing to behold. Next week, we have someone completely different, but equally iconic. Uh, her name is Julie Taymor, and uh, probably her most famous achievement is The Lion King, the musical version from Broadway and touring the world, which is still going strong. However, 20 years later, selling out everywhere. Uh, she's a genius puppeteer, uh, stage director, and filmmaker. And uh, we're going to be doing her film Across the Universe, which is a jukebox musical using the songs of the Beatles, but a completely original story and um, how exciting to have her a genius grant recipient and visionary director whose style appears in a lot of things these days. Uh, one of them we talk about, which is uh, Bo is Afraid, uh, has a very Julie Taymor-esque sequence in the middle. So her influence is massive. She casts a long shadow and um, she came to speak with us. So Tune in next week and we'll have Julie Taymor and Across the Universe. And until then, we'll see you in Hollywood.